Holy Father, because he was born, we are here. And through these moments on this Christmas day, we have been praising you, adoring you, worshiping you. We linger a few moments longer that Holy Scripture might engage our minds and address our lives. Let the mystery, the mystery that we celebrate in its own way, impress itself upon our worshiping hearts. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. I saw a painting once by the American artist Julius Gary Melchers, 1860 to 1932. He has entitled his painting, The Nativity. And as I have gazed at this canvas, I wish I had the original, but as I have gazed at this canvas, it seemed to me that the mystery of that starry, starry night long, long ago trembles in the artist's nuanced rendition. Now look, this caveat, and then I'm going to put the painting on the big screen. Here's the caveat. There's no way the big screens are going to do justice to what you're about to see. If you can handle that, I want you to take a look at what has become Melcher's, one of his most beloved works. All right? Put it on the screen for you, the, the Nativity. I want you to just pensively, this is Christmas Day, you can do it. We're not hurrying anywhere right now. I want you to brood for a moment on that uh, canvas. What is there about it? Is it the way that the artist has captured the brooding face of the husband, not father? As you see him there, he's leaning forward on his squatted knees. He is reflectively, pensively staring into the bedded newborn tucked at his feet in that crude box of hay. Look at, the, look at Joseph. What's going on in his mind? Maybe what the artist has captured is the utter spentness. And this is what struck me, I must admit. I've never seen Mary. She's always so bright-eyed and hallelujahed. But here she is, this young mother, utterly spent from the birthing process. Her eyes are at half-mast. She lies prone on the cold floor. Her weary face, expressionless, Resting against the side of her betrothed. What is it the husband contemplates? What is the young woman brooding over? Could it be without speaking to each other, they both are wondering, how can this infant lowly be the infant holy? The heavy, still air in that stable. I could look at that painting for hours. It's the mystery. The trough. Look at it. The trough. What the King James christens the manger. Just a box of cow feed. That's all it is. And atop the cow feed, the straw. Hey, whatever it is cows eat. Lies the God of the universe. Now immersed in the stream of human existence. There's an old Appalachian carol. It often plays on the wind in this season of the year. I wonder as I wander. 
out under the sky why Jesus the Savior did come for to die for poor ornery sinners like you and like I. I wonder as I wander out under the sky. You know what? We've been rushing through this Christmas. We all have. Hurrying here. Hurrying there. Got to get this. Got to do that. We haven't stopped to brood over why this moment is our reason for celebrating today. G.K. Chesterton, the great English writer, himself brooding over this mystery. He wrote the poem, The Wise Men. I'm going to put two stanzas of his poem on the screen for you. They capture, for me powerfully, this, this, this numinous sense of mystery that's in Melcher's painting. This is Chesterton now. The world grows terrible and white. And blinding white the breaking day. We walk bewildered in the light for something is too large for sight and something much too plain to say. The child that was ere world begun. We need but walk a little way. We need but see a latch undone. The child that played with moon and sun is playing with a little hay. That mystery. I wonder as I wonder. That mystery captured in the Christmas story. For us today, in a most unusual place, you would never think of 1 Timothy as the bearer of the story of Christmas. But it's there. Short and truncated, albeit. Open your Bible with me, please, to the little pastoral epistle, 1 Timothy. If you didn't bring a Bible, grab the pew Bible in front of you. I'll give you the page number. It's page 798 in your pew Bible. 1 Timothy chapter 3, the embedded Christmas story. Just, just a single line. It's all we need for our meditation in this Christmas homily. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. I'll be in the New King James Version as the Pew Bible is. Here are these words. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. Now here it goes. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the Spirit, speaking of His resurrection, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world. Oh, may that be one day soon. Believed on in the world and received up in glory when He comes back the second time to take His earth children home. Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh. Scholars believe this little fragment right here, this little fragment is extrapolated straight from an early Christian hymn of the first century. Paul's quoting a hymn. They chanted these words. They sang these words. Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh. Great mystery in the, in the uh, Greek. Put it on the screen for you. In the Greek, here's how it reads. Mega musterion. Instantly you see where we get two English words. Mega mystery. Mega mystery. That God was manifested in the flesh. Mega mystery. How are we humanly, humanly able to comprehend what angel Gabriel... I mean, this is how the Christmas story got started. She was a teenager. She had to have been a teenager. 
Gabriel materializes in front of young Mary. And he announces to her, that holy thing which will be born in you is the Son of God. Do you think Mary understood it? Are you kidding? She's just staring at this angel. Her teenage jaw dropped open. I've never known a man. That holy thing that will be born in you is eternal himself. We have whole libraries now devoted to that one theme of the incarnation, the enfleshment. That's what the word literally means, the enfleshment of God himself. So that when that womb closes, that passageway is closed again. Outside of it is the glistening, sticky form of Almighty God, born now, a squalling newborn. Great is the mystery. God was manifested in the flesh. Mega mystery. Chesterton was right. We walk bewildered in the light for something is too large for sight and something much too plain to say. Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh. We've been too busy this Christmas. Way too busy. We've hurried through this holiday. It's over now. Tomorrow we wake up and it's gone. Nothing left but the wrapping to burn. It's over. We hurried too fast this year. We forgot the mystery. The mega mystery. Two pieces appeared in the press this month that have reminded me, who is this God who came down to the trough and was laid upon that sticky, prickly hay? Who is this God? Two pieces. One's a piece from astronomy. I'm going to share them both with you. And the other is a piece on physics. And if our scientists, some of them didn't go away for the holiday, they might recognize some of this. Wait a minute. We had Mickey Kutzner, our physicist, right up here playing, playing in the brass. That brass music was, was heavenly. All right. So this is, uh, here's the headline for this. Universe may hold more stars than suspected. Hold on, to your, hold on to your pew. How many stars are there in the sky? It's an oft-asked question, but one that has eluded a precise, precise answer. Estimates. Now, here we go. How many stars in our universe? Estimates run between 70 sextillion. Now, a sextillion is a one with 21 zeros after it. Let's put 70 sextillion. All right, there's 70 sextillion. All right. So, estimates run between 70 sextillion and three septillion. A septillion has 24 zeros behind it, so let's put three septillion. Somewhere between those two numbers is the number of the stars in our little universe. Can you believe that? Hey, hey, hold on, hold on. This is true. There is a line in Scripture. Keep that number. Lock that in your brain because it's going to disappear from the screen. There is a line in the Psalms. Look at this line from the Psalms describing God. Watch this. Psalm 147, verse 4. He counts the number of stars and calls them all by name. I heard a business yesterday on WBBM because I listen to the radio when I shower and shave. So I'm listening to this business. And every year about this time, they say... Get a gift your loved one will never forget. Name a star after her or him. It's called the International Star Registry. You can actually pay 50 bucks and one of those three septillion stars will be named after a loved one of yours. 
and they'll put it in the, was it the Patent Office or the Library of Congress? I forget. That is what's called opportunistic. Because as long as there's 70 septillion more, you're in business. He named the stars. He counts the number. That's the God, ladies and gentlemen. That's the God who comes down. And by the way, some, some astronomers skip the number, numbers altogether and note that there are more stars than grains of sand on earth. Others, in answer to the question, how many stars are there, are there just say a lot. <laughs> I think that's the best answer. How many stars are there? A lot. Trust me, a lot. Yeah. They're saying they're even more than suspected. My, my, my. Okay, so that's astronomy. The God of, of 70 sextillion to three septillion stars. That's the God. Remember, Christ, the second person of the God, is the creator. He is the active agent of creation. So he's the one that named them when he created them. Okay? That God is what came out of Mary and is now propped up on the trough. Gave everything away. Gave it all up to save the likes of you and me. I don't understand it. I wonder as I wonder. I don't understand. Here's the other piece. This is, this is fascinating. Okay, this is from physics. This, this appeared in this month's Christianity Today. It's entitled Christ of the Klingons. And if you're a Trekkie, you'll know what that's about. It's a study of the explorations of a Christian physicist at Baylor University in Texas. His name is Gerald Cleaver and a Christian philosopher at Messiah College in Pennsylvania. His name is Robin Collins. Now listen to this. Both scholars are suggesting that when we speak of an infinite God as we do, infinite is much greater than we first suspected. Hold on now. So I go to the Oxford English Dictionary online and I type in the word infinite. Give me the definition of infinite. Here it is. Having no limit or end, real or assignable. No limit or end. That's the God that came down into that box of cow feed. All right? Based on the so-called M theory. And if Mickey were sitting right here, he'd be nodding his head. Oh, yeah, Dwight, I know about the M theory. A whole new dimension to infinity has opened before us. Let me just read a line or two. In the old string theory days, okay, string theory? Many theorists had come to believe that the space had ten dimensions. What's string theory? It's, string theory, at its simplest, had a lyrical or at least a musical explanation. Every particle in the universe was a tiny one-dimensional string, and, and different particles existed because of the different ways a string could vibrate. So everything's a string. All, the holy grail for scientists is the theory for everything. Just find one theory that describes it all. Now they have the M theory. In the, in the old string theory days, many theorists had come to believe that space had ten dimensions, three directions that we see, with time as a fourth dimension, then six curled up spatial directions that are too small to see unless you happen to be a string. The M theory added an eleventh dimension in which a lot seemed to be going on. Now hold on. In addition to one-dimensional strings, the eleventh dimension revealed multi-dimensional objects dubbed membranes or brains, B-R-A-N-E-S. Brains for short. Hidden from us with our three-dimensional perception, brains could be as small as a string or as large as a universe. In fact, some have suggested that our universe is a massive brain inside a much larger reality. That this universe is not all there is. Enter now what they are calling multiverses. Universe is one. Multi is multiple. 
Listen up. Some M theorists, Cleaver included, think ultimately it will take us, this M theory will take us even further, that our entire universe, planet, stars, great walls, they have these great walls that contain millions of galaxies in them, and they already know they exist, great walls and all, all of this is just a bubble on an ocean of existence covered with many more like it. In fact, now this is where you're just going to, you're going to go off your pew on this one. The multiverse made possible in the M-theory predicts an incredibly diverse array of possible universes with different sets of physical laws, maybe as many as 10 to the 500th possible realities. Other universes out there, 10 to the 500th. Not one more, not two more. Yeah, that's what I did. I just opened my mouth and said, I can't believe it. Infinite is bigger than we thought infinite was. Leading... Cleaver, now I'll put the words on the screen for you. Leading Cleaver to make this, uh, this statement. To me, the M theory offers a Christian God whose creative ability is much larger than we could ever imagine before. Both men suggest even if he had 10 to the 500 universes in his one hand, that's how big he is. Ladies and gentlemen, we have come today to worship a God for whom the two words mega mystery are the appropriate human response. We don't understand it. Mega mystery. But I'll tell you what, in the end, the mega mystery of Christmas, for me, the mega mystery of Christmas is not that, it's not how could God do this. It's why would God do this for me. I know my messed up life and heart. Why would you do this for me? Ten to the five hundredth universe is in your hands, and you would risk it all to save me? I don't understand it. A century ago, these words were written that wrestle with this mega mystery. I put them on the screen for you. The work of redemption is called a mystery, and it is indeed the mystery by which everlasting righteousness is brought to all who believe. The race, in consequence of sin, was at enmity. We were at war with God. Now, this line, I, can't, I cannot comprehend it. Christ at an infinite cost. I already now know that infinite is way beyond what I ever thought. Christ at an infinite cost by a painful process. I don't understand that. By a painful process. Christ. A process mysterious to angels as well as to men and women. Christ assumed humanity, hiding His divinity, laying aside His glory. He was born a babe in Bethlehem. End quote. Did you catch that? At a painful, at a painful process. At an infinite cost. How easily we crassly reduce the price of the incarnation to, Jesus, to Christ having to give up celestial breakfast in bed and 24-hour angelic maid service. Oh, I have to leave this now. That's what we think the sacrifice is. And then we discover that infinite is far greater than we ever first knew. Can we ever know the depths of His painful descent to the trough? Ah, the quotation goes on. Put it on the screen. This is the mystery of godliness. That he who was equal with the Father should clothe his divinity with humanity and laying aside all the glory of his office, descend step after step in the path of humiliation, enduring severe and still more severe abasement. The majesty of heaven was led as a lamb to the slaughter and amid scoffs and jeers, ridicule and false accusation, he was nailed to the cross. 
What an exhibition of divine love that thus Jesus, thus Christ proclaimed the good news of pardon. Even to his murderers on the cross, he revealed the love of the unknown God. There is mercy for all. The most hardened sinner, if he repents, will be forgiven. Amen and hallelujah. Again, I ask you, could it be that the mega mystery is not so much how could He do it, but why would He do it? One of my favorite Christmas stories that I'd like to end with is told by Brendan Manning in his wonderful book, Lion and Lamb. I love to go back to that well and dip from it again and again. It's the heartwarming story about little seven-year-old Richard Ballinger in Anderson, South Carolina. We had the joy in 1994 of hosting ABC Television's Christmas Eve, National Christmas Eve service, taped right here at Pioneer on behalf of the National Council of Churches. And I shared this story then. You may remember it, some of you old-timers. Seven-year-old Richard Ballinger. It's the day before Christmas, all right? It's yesterday. Richie's mother is busily wrapping some packages, and she asks her son if he'd please shine her shoes. So he does, and soon, with the proud smile that only a seven-year-old can muster, he presents his tiny, he, he presents the shiny shoes back to his mother. She tossles his hair, and she is, oh, Richie, beautiful. And she, in gratitude, puts a quarter in his hand, thanking him for that shoe shine job. On Christmas morning, today, as she put on her shoes to go to church, she felt a strange lump in one of the shoes. Taking it off, she shook the shoe and out dropped a quarter wrapped in a small piece of paper. And on the paper in a child's scrawl were the words, I'd done it for love. That's it, isn't it? In the dark, dank, odiferous stable outside the crowded inn of Bethlehem, the very first Christmas present of all wrapped in paper upon which were scrawled the words from God. I'd done it for love. Not very good grammar, but the message could never be clearer. I'd done it for love. How does that other 3.16 go? 1 Timothy 3.16, John 3.16. Say it out loud with me. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. I've done it for love. The mystery of divine love. Burst in a trough of cow feed. Executed on a cross of wood. Ascended on a cloud of glory. Descending one day, returning on a sky of fire. The great mystery of God with us forever and ever. Amen. A mystery we shall gladly ponder forever and ever. Amen.